Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a mojito. How about you, Jenny? I'm drinking a rum and coke. On today's episode, we'll be talking about the Denise Huskins kidnapping. 29-year-old Denise Huskins and her 30-year-old boyfriend, Aaron Quinn, both physical therapists who had been dating for seven months, were sound asleep in Aaron's home on Mare Island in Vallejo, California, on the early hours of March 23, 2015. They were awoken by sounds of men in the house and flashing lights. An intruder wearing a black wetsuit and a mask came into their bedroom pointing a gun with a red laser at them and stated this was a robbery. The intruder in their bedroom knew Aaron's name and demanded Denise bind Aaron's hands with zip ties that were left at the foot of their bed. As Denise complied, the intruder encouraged her and let her know she was doing a good job. He then shoved Aaron and Denise into a closet where Denise was restrained. Both Aaron and Denise had been bound with zip ties, blindfolded with blacked out swimming goggles, had headphones placed over their ears, and were forced to drink cough syrup laced with a sedative. In Aaron's headphones, a recorded message from the intruder began playing, claiming that they would be kidnapping Denise, and the intruder would shock Denise with a stun gun or cut her face if Aaron did not comply. They also stated that they required two $8,500 ransom payments from Aaron. Aaron quickly passed out from the sedative. Denise and Aaron were separated, and the intruder shocked Aaron by stating his parents' address and bank information. Denise, who was still bound and blindfolded, was placed in the trunk of a car by one of the intruders. When Aaron awoke, he was in the first floor living room of his home, in a square marked by red tape with a camera watching him. The kidnapper had warned if he did not stay within the square, Denise would be hurt, and that if Aaron went to the police, Denise would be killed and his family harmed. After 10 hours of waiting in the tape square, Aaron cut himself free and called 911, not knowing if the kidnappers would actually kill Denise. He discovered that his car and laptop were gone along with Denise and noticed emails mentioning kidnappers and asking for their ransom payment. A massive search by police began that included over 100 search and rescue workers searching the surrounding waterways. Aaron gave permission for police to search his home and gave them access to his emails. His missing car was found later that night at an undisclosed Vallejo location. 150 miles away, just south of Lake Tahoe on the California and Nevada border, Denise was being kept heavily sedated in a blacked out bedroom at a hideout by the intruder. Denise thought of scenarios to try to escape, but came to the conclusion that the safest option for her would be talking to her abductor and befriending him. The kidnapper revealed he had been going through a tough time in his life, and that her and Aaron did not deserve this, and that they were good people. In response, Denise revealed that she had been sexually assaulted in her past. She said this with hopes that her kidnapper would see her as a human and not make her experience another assault. Unfortunately, the kidnapper raped Denise and filmed the incident. He didn't like how the sexual assault looked on camera, and he raped her again, this time taping Denise's eyes shut. Denise claims the abductor told her his gang was making him do this and that the video would be used against her if she contacted police. Back in Vallejo, the police focused in on Aaron. They were weary of the bizarre story he told. 
Police believe Aaron killed Denise and made up the kidnapping story. He was interrogated for 18 hours at a time. Aaron claims the police even went as far as to call him a murderer. The day after Denise's kidnapping, the San Francisco Chronicle newspaper received a strange email that included a manifesto and an audio recording of Denise Huskins stating her name and that she had been kidnapped but was otherwise okay. Later that night, Denise was drugged once again and placed in a car. Her abductor told her he was driving to Southern California to set her free, but Denise was certain she was going to be killed. They drove all night, and on the morning of March 25th, Denise was released in her hometown of Huntington Beach, California, which was 400 miles away from where she had been taken. As the abductor helped her out of the car, she claims he said, quote, I wish we met under different circumstances, end quote. Denise remembers hearing a door close behind her, pulling up her blindfold and seeing that the vehicle and abductor were gone. Still heavily sedated, she spotted a gardener nearby called for help. Police immediately questioned the validity of Denise's story. In particular, police fought Denise's calm demeanor and the fact that she was released not far away from her mother's home were suspicious. They also felt that there was inconsistencies between her and Aaron's account of the home invasion. Denise and her family were questioned by the police, but Denise felt more like a suspect than like a victim. On the advice of a family member, she hired a lawyer. The night Denise was returned, police held a press conference publicly declaring that none of the claims made by Aaron and Denise could be substantiated and that the kidnapping was a, quote, orchestrated event and not a kidnapping, end quote. They went on to say that Denise, quote, plundered valuable resources away from our community, end quote, and that both she and Aaron should apologize. Her case was quickly compared to the novel Gone Girl, which was released as the movie the year before. Gone Girl revolves around a woman who fakes her disappearance and pins it on her husband for revenge. The case made national news and the public was at odds with what to believe. The kidnapping and public scrutiny left both Aaron and Denise mentally and physically exhausted. Her attorneys said police jumped the gun in calling the kidnapping a hoax and that Denise was in fact the victim. In the days following the police press conference and Denise's return, the San Francisco Chronicle newspaper received a series of emails from a group of criminals taking responsibility for the abduction and claiming the police response was a travesty. These emails included details of the kidnapping and photos that were alleged to be of the room Denise was held in and the gun that was used in the home invasion. The gun in question later turned out to be a water gun. The emails say the crew chose $8,500 for the ransom because it's less than $10,000, the amount at which cash withdrawals must be reported to the federal government. Emails were also sent to the Vallejo Police Department insisting that the kidnapping was not a hoax and demanding the police apologize to Denise. Police accused Denise and Aaron of sending these emails. The Los Angeles Times also reported it received an anonymous email about the case. The sender wrote, quote, 
The Mare Island kidnapping was a training mission to test means and methods that would be used on higher network targets, end quote. Two months later, on June 5th, police responded to a home invasion and robbery in nearby Dublin, California, that was eerily similar to Erin and Denise's story. A man had attacked a couple in bed and used zip ties to restrain them. In this case, the intruder escaped and left a cell phone behind when one of the victims managed to call 911. The FBI tracked the phone back to 38-year-old Matthew Muller. Muller was a Harvard Law graduate, immigration attorney, and former U.S. Marine that had recently been disbarred. He was taken into police custody on June 8, 2015 for the Dublin incident. In his South Lake Tahoe home, investigators found Aaron's missing laptop, zip ties, and swimming goggles with black tape that had a long blonde hair stuck to them, which was believed to be Denise's hair. Even the GPS in Muller's car had the Huntington Beach address still in its history. Later that month, the FBI received notification from the Vallejo Police Department that Alameda County Sheriff's detectives were investigating a home invasion that was similar to the Vallejo kidnapping. The departments met to discuss similarities between Denise's kidnapping and the Dublin home invasion. Matthew Muller was then arrested for Denise's kidnapping. Muller had spied on Denise and Aaron leading up to the abduction with a drone and sent emails to the San Francisco Chronicle from an anonymous email address. In July of 2015, the FBI announced that Muller was charged in connection with Denise's kidnapping. That same day, Denise and Aaron held a press conference with their attorneys asking for an apology from Vallejo police. Their attorney said that Muller's arrest, quote, changes nothing about the humiliation and the violence that was perpetrated on them by a psychopath, end quote. In September 2016, Muller pled guilty to one count of kidnapping, and in March 2017, he was sentenced to 40 years in prison. His defense attorney wanted a 30-year sentence, saying his client had been diagnosed as manic and depressive and can be rehabilitated with proper treatment for what he called, quote, a truly debilitating mental illness, end quote. During Muller's sentencing hearing, Denise had her chance to confront him and said he finally got to look her in the eye. Muller was later charged with rape. Denise and Aaron filed a civil lawsuit against the Vallejo police claiming they ran a, quote, campaign of disparagement, end quote, ruined their reputations and forced them to move. The lawsuit was settled in March 2018, and the couple was awarded $2.5 million. The city of Vallejo apologized in 2016, and Denise and Aaron did eventually receive a letter of apology from the Vallejo Police Department but it stated that they, the Vallejo police, did nothing wrong. Denise and Aaron are now married, and they believe more people were involved in their kidnapping and that the public is in danger. This case is literally stuff my nightmares are made of. Just hearing about that makes my skin crawl. What do you think, Del, about the whole situation, the crime itself, and the police's actions? I think the crime is really wild. It's definitely something that Muller took a lot of time to plan and to execute. And he seemed to be living out some sort of fantasy with this couple and the other couple in Dublin. I think that the fact that he has a mental illness is sad, but it doesn't take away from the harm that he caused his victims. 
in regards to the police, I think what they did was absolutely disgusting. I know that they have to investigate and I know that it's a wild story, but even if they thought it was a hoax, I don't think that they should have taken such an active step in trying to disparage Denise and Aaron. Hopefully they've learned their lesson from this case and they'll take stories like this more seriously and definitely try to look to see if any of the evidence that the victims are providing is something that can be verified and not just jump to the conclusion of it's a wild and bizarre story so it's a hope. What about you? I agree. I think the police like Denise's attorney said jump to conclusions way too fast. I understand why they would go after Aaron so hard, but the same day Denise returned, they were able to conclude their investigation and say that it was a hoax. The same day? I don't understand that. I know that, you know, Aaron could have easily taped over swimming goggles himself, but wouldn't they be able to maybe look for fingerprints? I don't know how fast they would get results back, but I think just way too soon. And I think it's pretty ridiculous that they would think that Denise was inspired by Gone Girl. I know that crazy stuff happens in this world and we're going to talk about how movies and books and TV shows have influenced people to commit crimes, but I don't, it seems like they just pulled that out of their asses because why? They didn't want to do the work. I don't really understand. I do know that Obviously, this is a wild story, and it sounds like something straight out of a movie. I mean, I've never heard of anything like this. Someone going to such great lengths to start a home invasion and kidnap someone and cover their tracks, really. You know, Mueller went through so much to make sure he wouldn't be caught. It's scary how much he thought they wouldn't be able to see him because they were wearing goggles and he had a mask on. They wouldn't really be able to hear him. They would be sedated. He would make Aaron scared, not knowing whether, you know, he was going to kill Denise or not. It's so like chilling. It gets me to my core. He clearly has mental health issues. And I don't know if maybe this was some type of, you know, attention seeking crime. I'm by no means, you know, a psychologist or anything like that. But to go to such great lengths, like, frankly, like what he did was unheard of. And like I said, it's something, you know, that you would see in a movie or a TV show, not really real life. And I think it's so, I don't know, sad and funny and weird that he was writing to the police saying, you need to apologize to them. I know that some criminals like to taunt the police and the media, but I don't know. With Mueller, I feel like he's not really doing that when he's saying, hey, apologize to them. I feel like he's putting like more attention to Aaron and Denise than saying like, hey, I committed this crime and I want credit for it because it was real. Maybe that's just me that thinks that. Maybe that also goes to show some kind of guilt that he has too because he was saying that Aaron and Denise didn't deserve it. I know that didn't stop him from then raping Denise, but I wonder what was going on in his mind. He's had a hard time in jail. He's been suicidal. Such a bizarre case, and I really hope no one has to go through that again. Going off of that, there's no definitive proof that Mueller acted with others, but do you think he acted alone in this crime? And do you think he's possibly committed more crimes before that? So I definitely think that he has committed more crimes. People usually commit minor 
crimes before they start doing major felonies like a home invasion, kidnapping, and rape. So I think there are some minor nuisance crimes. And on the question of whether he acted alone or whether he was part of a group, I think that I can see it from both angles. This is definitely something where I can see that he was not in a good mental state. And so maybe he was able to create this big elaborate thing. But also a lot of it points to someone with more sophistication leading the conspiracy, leading the planning of the crime. For example, they included that they weren't going to take out more than $10,000 because that would trigger the IRS being notified. That's not something that someone with his mental state would really be able to think through that's someone with more sophistication that's someone with more experience guiding it like okay we want to keep it under this threshold to make sure that they're able to get it without alerting anyone and also just the fact that he was using some sedatives well where did he get it from You know, there's no evidence that he would have had access to it by himself. So if he was part of another criminal network, it's definitely plausible that you had various people involved and they were responsible for different aspects of this crime. So you have one person who is handling the emails. You have another person that is getting the sedatives. And then you have him that's actually acting out on the crime. What do you think? That's kind of how I feel too. I can see it going either way because if he is as guilty as he says he is, I think maybe he would have given names to the police by now. This is such an involved crime. There are so many moving parts to it that it's kind of hard to believe that one person could pull this off alone. I would really like to know how long he had been planning to do this for. I read somewhere that he was initially after... Aaron and his ex-fiance. So I'm not sure the time between Aaron and his ex-fiance breaking up and then him dating Denise again, it had to have been at least seven months because that's how long Aaron and Denise were together. So seven months to a year, he could have possibly been planning something like this. Something that gets me is that we said that Aaron's car was missing and it was found at an undisclosed location. Muller have stolen Aaron's car, dropped it off somewhere, came back and then transported Denise in his car. I haven't seen too many people talk about that. And I've only seen the car mentioned in two different articles, but I wanted to include that because that's something that's kind of tripping me up. It's so hard to tell because Aaron and Denise aren't really sure. They've said that they think more people were involved. And I know when they were woken up, it sounded like multiple people were in the house. And, you know, that very well could be true, but it also could maybe just be you're dead asleep and then someone wakes you up in such a frightening way and you're so disoriented, you don't really know what's going on. I do think Mueller has committed more crimes. He was believed to be involved in I think either a rape or attempted rape and robbery of a woman. I want to say in 2009, but I don't know if that ever went anywhere. But I agree, Del, you don't just out of nowhere do such a a complex crime like this. Like we said, the police were adamant that this kidnapping was a hoax, it was not true, and that the police did not believe Denise. So what happens when the police don't believe victims? 
Police called their investigation of Denise's kidnapping a wild goose chase and said that resources were wasted, that Denise and Aaron should apologize, and that it was all an orchestrated act. Something that really tripped the police up was that there were inconsistencies in Denise and Aaron's stories, but there's a reason why there could have been inconsistencies, yet both of them were telling the truth. So when asking people to recount information when they are under stress is problematic and doesn't always yield the best results. Trauma psychologist Dr. Rebecca Bailey said, quote, when we're under stress, it's harder to activate our higher level thinking because we're so much in our physical body, fight or flight or shut down. There are huge pieces that they may forget or account differently. And the brain's prefrontal cortex, which is key to decision-making and memory, often becomes temporarily impaired when recalling a traumatic memory. Something else that makes it difficult for victims to recount events is brainwashing or mind control through threats from abductors and kidnappers as well. And sometimes victims even deny or lie about their experience because of doubt or fear of repercussions. And that can be someone thinking, oh, you know, what happened wasn't really as bad or, you know, maybe I deserve this because of X, Y, Z, whatever my attacker said. And when victims aren't believed, it can be very traumatizing for them. And when they aren't believed or are fearful, they won't be believed. They often don't report crimes. And we see this with sexual assault and rape. That's pretty common knowledge. But we also see this with hate crimes as well. People think they won't be believed because it was a verbal attack and not a physical one because it wasn't that big a deal. I won't be taken seriously. And unfortunately, because of this, Criminals go free and continue victimizing people. Victims face mental health consequences, and this all helps to create societal norms like rape culture, which we've talked about before. There's a lot of action going on right now into trying to prioritize survivors' needs, and that can be things like an option to make a report without going to a police station, having mental health advocates, and having community resources there alongside police. There are a few other cases we've covered where the police didn't believe victims or their families, and there might be more than these four, but these came to mind for me. So we have Misty Copsey's mom. She fought for how long? Months to get the police to believe that Misty was not a runaway, that she was in fact missing and endangered. We have Johnny Gosh's family who, again, for years and months tried to tell the police that their son was not a runaway and that they had 3,000 witnesses there to prove that he was abducted. And even after, you know, all this evidence came in to show that he could have been in a child sex trafficking ring, the police still didn't want to investigate that or believe the people coming forward. I think the first person we talked about that wasn't believed by the police was Conorak Synthemophone. And the woman who tried to aid him and call the police, Conorak, was unfortunately a victim of Jeffrey Dahmer's. And the crazy thing about that situation is that someone saw Conorak in the streets, called police to help him, and the police believed Jeffrey Dahmer over her. And then 
Lastly, we have at least one family of one of the victims of John Wayne Gacy who called the police, I think, over a hundred times to try to get them to do something because they knew that their son had not run away. A majority of those cases that I just mentioned do have sexual assault in their nature as well. So you can maybe argue that that's also why the police didn't want to believe these people. There's also issues of race and class as well and gender. Another big reason the police didn't really believe Denise and the public didn't believe her was because she didn't act the way people would think a victim would act. She was very calm when they found her and people would think you were just abducted and you were just released. Why aren't you freaking out, asking for help, screaming in the street? Hey, I'm Denise Huskins and I'm safe. We usually see victims as people that are very emotional, maybe scared, upset, angry. They shouldn't ever smile or laugh or appear calm. They shouldn't be cold. And unfortunately, a victim's behavior can be used against them and used to destroy their credibility. So unfortunately, in this case, the Vallejo Police Department really dropped the ball. And the Vallejo police officer who headed the kidnapping investigation was named the Officer of the Year in 2015. And the Vallejo Police Department has been accused of misconduct since the 2015 kidnapping. In March 2020, Captain John Whitney alleged he was retaliated against for speaking out on a variety of misconduct issues, including Huskins' kidnapping. According to the claim, former Vallejo Police Department Chief Andrew Badeau directed Whitney to delete text messages on his cell phone so that they would not be downloadable during the litigation involving Huskins' kidnapping and conceal the fact that Chief Badeau told Lieutenant Kenny Park to, quote, burn that bitch, end quote. Denise responded to this with, quote, and it was just one example of too many where I was dehumanized and vilified by Vallejo police. It's truly terrifying to come face to face with such blind hatred. I guess in their eyes, if you're a woman, you're just another bitch to burn. If you're a person of color, you're just another criminal to kill. It's horrific and the community of Vallejo deserves better, end quote. I'm glad she has been sticking up for herself from day one. I feel like that's also probably why the police didn't like her. Yes, I definitely agree with you. I think it's so weird that you would get upset at a victim at all. But especially to say burn that bitch, like, was that necessary? Even if you had some hostile feelings against her, I think that as a police officer, you do need to maintain a base level of professionalism. Definitely. It really just goes to show how lowly they thought of her and how I think that they're just calling her that because she was fighting for her right and saying, no, I am a victim. You're not handling this right. You're embarrassing me, humiliating me constantly. And it kind of seems like whenever people want to speak up against the police, this is the type of retaliation they receive. Like we said, police compared Denise's kidnapping to the popular novel and movie Gone Girl. While it may seem crazy, many crimes have actually been inspired by books and movies. So the first crime that we're going to talk about that was inspired by a book was the murder of John Lennon. On December 8th, 1980, 
Mark David Chapman shot and killed John Lennon as he was entering his New York City apartment. Chapman was holding a copy of the novel Catcher in the Rye when he was arrested. Chapman identified with the protagonist holding Caulfield and his alienation. Before his sentencing, Chapman read a passage from the novel in the courtroom. He was quoted as saying that the book was his motivation. He later wrote to the New York Times to say that, quote, this extraordinary book holds many answers, end quote. The second crime was the attempted assassination of former President Ronald Reagan. On March 31st, 1981, so less than a year after the killing of John Lennon, John Hinckley Jr. shot President Ronald Reagan and his press secretary, James Brady. Both survived, but Brady was left permanently disabled. Hinckley was obsessed with the movie Taxi Driver and also The Catcher in the Rye. The main character in Taxi Driver attempts to assassinate a senator. His attorneys argue Hinckley was attempting to reenact events in the movie. He was also obsessed with the actress and one of the stars of the movie, Taxi Driver, Jodie Foster, and hoped the assassination would get her attention. On the day of the shooting, he wrote Foster a letter that included, quote, Jody, I'm asking you to please look into your heart and at least give me the chance with this historical deed to gain your respect and love, end quote. 16-year-old Cassie Jo Stoddart was murdered by Brian Draper and Tori Adamchick in September 2006 in Idaho. Her killers were inspired by the movie Scream and the Columbine shooting, and other people have also been inspired by the movie Scream to murder their parents and friends and, like, neighbors. She was house-sitting for her aunt and uncle and invited her boyfriend and Draper and Adam Chick over to hang out and watch a movie. Draper and Adam Chick unlocked the basement door and pretended to leave, but in reality they were hiding in their car. In the car, they changed into black clothing and put on white masks. They taunted Cassie and her boyfriend throughout the night by making loud noises and turning off the power inside the house. Once Cassie's boyfriend left, the pair went in and stabbed her 30 times. They also recorded her murder. And they both received a mandatory life sentence plus 30 years to life for conspiracy to commit murder. Really graphic, gruesome crime. I feel so bad for her. It was... Their plan the entire time to kill her and scare her. I can't even imagine how frightened she probably was in the last few hours of her life. Denise's case was proven not to be a hoax, but there are many other cases of hoaxed crimes. In April 2005, Jennifer Wilbanks went missing the day before her wedding. She emerged three days later and claimed that she had been taken hostage by a Latino man and Caucasian woman while she was out for a run. According to Wilbanks, the couple had driven her from Duluth, Georgia to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where they had sexually assaulted her in a van. She later recanted her story, admitting she actually fled from Georgia on a bus because of, quote, personal issues, end quote. The wedding was called off. Jennifer was sentenced to two years of probation, 120 hours of community service, and ongoing mental health counseling. A judge also ordered her to pay the sheriff's office $2,550 to cover some of the costs of searching for her. She also agreed to pay $13,250 
to the city of Duluth, Georgia, to help pay for the overtime costs the city incurred searching for her. Do you remember when this happened, though? I do. It was the wildest case I had ever seen because, you know, they presented her life as so perfect and so people couldn't figure out why she wanted to set up this elaborate thing of running away from her own wedding. I remember it too. And for anyone out there, um, you might remember it was called The Runaway Bride. There's also a movie called The Runaway Bride with Julia Roberts. I've never seen that. Uh, I'm assuming Julia Roberts is The Runaway Bride in that. But it was a really big deal over here. People were really worried about her and her, I remember she was all over the news too. Imagine how like, I don't know, embarrassed her fiance must have felt. She was like that desperate to get away from him. For all of our UK listeners, I'm not sure if you'll remember the case of Shannon Matthews. Nine-year-old Shannon Matthews went missing in February 2008 while walking home from school in Dewsbury Moor, West Yorkshire. She was found by police 24 days later in Michael Donovan's flat. I think she was hiding under his bed. And his flat was in Batley Carr, West Yorkshire. Donovan was the uncle of Shannon's mother, Karen's ex-boyfriend. And it turned out that Karen orchestrated the kidnapping of her daughter in order to collect reward money. Donovan kept Shannon drugged and imprisoned in his flat as part of a plan he had with Karen to also claim the reward money. And Karen and Donovan received eight-year prison sentences after being found guilty of kidnap, false imprisonment, and perverting the course of justice. And speaking of attention, we have another case as well. Yeah, so this is the case of Jesse Smollett. And in January of 2019, the actor alleged he was attacked near his Chicago home by two masked assailants. He told the police that they gained his attention by yelling racial and homophobic slurs. So the exact slur was, aren't you that faggot nigger from Empire? That's what he alleged that was yelled at him. And he claimed that they began to beat him, quote, about the face with their hands, end quote. Then poured, quote, an unknown chemical substance, end quote, on him, possibly bleach, and wrapped a rope around his neck. He also claimed that he tried to fight back his attackers and he was punching them and defending himself all while he held on to his subway sandwich. In a follow-up interview with the police, he alleged that the attackers yelled, quote, MAGA country, a reference to President Donald Trump's Make America Great Again slogan. The police quickly found the two men believed to be assailants, but the public was beginning to doubt Jesse's story. So one of the reasons why people were doubting it was because the two assailants that they arrested were two Nigerian men who were their personal bodyguards and trainers and friend to Jesse. So definitely him claiming that the people were racist and screaming MAGA country definitely cut against who they actually were. And the two attackers also, despite being personal friends of Jesse, they started snitching almost immediately after being arrested. And they claimed that Jesse paid them to help orchestrate and stage the crime for a publicity stunt to promote his career. And they actually are on camera using the advance that Jesse had given them for the crime to buy the supply, so to buy the rope to buy bleach and other things that they would need. Just one month later, Jesse was charged with felony disorderly conduct 
for filing a false report after allegedly staging the attack against himself in Chicago. Charges against him were dropped in March of 2019, but the city is pursuing some other methods for recovering the over $30,000 that they spent investigating this alleged crime. This was another thing that was all over the news in the United States, at least when this happened. I was really shocked. Yeah, I remember this case. And from the second that I heard it, I didn't believe it. There was just so much wrong with what he was saying. Um, Like the fact that he went out for subway at 3 a.m. The fact that he didn't want to give the police his phone trying to claim that it was a privacy thing. No, you were just lying. And you knew that if you gave the police your phone, they would figure out quicker that you were lying. And the fact that he claimed that bleach was poured on him. But if you look at the temperature for the night, bleach was actually going to be frozen if it was out there for any amount of time. So it couldn't have been poured on anyone. I think that he set up the attack for attention and for political gain. I think that he wanted to demonize Trump supporters. And he knew that all he needed to do was fake a racial attack and say that, you know, in the middle of Chicago, people are screaming MAGA countries and calling people niggers and faggots. And that's just not a thing that happened. He also received a, was it a homophobic and racist letter? Yeah. So apparently before the Chicago incident, there was a racist and homophobic letter that was sent to the set of empire. And it turns out that most likely that was also him. And because it didn't drum up enough controversy and enough attention for him, that's why he did the attack. He figured that a physical assault would probably do more to get attention than a letter would. You'd think he'd learn his lesson, you know, the first time around with the letter. And now look at him. His career's ruined. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about Denise's kidnapping and the police response to it. Make sure you click the subscribe button. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform and YouTube every Wednesday with a new episode. Follow us on Instagram at Crime Corruption Cocktails and on Twitter at Charade Inc. Please consider donating to our Patreon. This will help us get better equipment and bring higher quality content to you. We appreciate any amount you can give. This is Jenny and Dell signing off. Stay safe. Thank you.